Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hi there, BTB buddies. It's Scott, your host. I hope you're enjoying the Behind the Bits podcast because I sure enjoy putting it out there. As a podcast addict, I'm always looking for new podcasts to listen to different perspectives on comedy. I always like to find those independent podcasts that aren't hosted by the big name celebrities. You know, the ones where the host is actually doing it for the passion of their subject. I found a good one in Stand Up Reviews. That's the name of the podcast, Stand Up Reviews. Ben Guest is the host, and the podcast consists of him reviewing stand-up comedy specials. He's reviewed specials by Kevin Hart. Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle, just to name a few. I really like to hear Ben's point of view on stand-up reviews. I don't necessarily love all the specials that he reviews, but it's great to hear another opinion. Another great plus for this podcast is that it's not very long. You can listen to it on a quick car ride. All the episodes are about 15 minutes long, and they get right to the subject at hand. I've listened to stand-up reviews on Spotify, but it's available on all the apps. Give it a listen and tell me what you think. All right, we're back at Behind the Bits, and I've got Bill Gorgo with me. How you doing, Bill? Hi, Scott. I'm doing well, and it's nice to hear that I'm alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you look great. Despite what we're going through, you look good. Have you been cutting your own hair, or is somebody doing that for you? Yeah, that's been I probably the greatest challenge of, <laughs> of self-isolating all these weeks is cutting my own hair. And, and <laughs> by the time I got brave enough to do it, my head was a mess. Yeah, and yeah. I'm kind of proud of the way it's turned out. It looks, it, it looks good. It looks much better than my first go around. Beard trimmer. Yeah, Just a little beard trimmer. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you um, specifically. Now, we're I, I always like to mention the group that we're both in. It's the uh, Maxwell Method of stand-up comedy. Um, one of the best groups on Facebook. It's the only group that I read every single post. Dobie does a great job with that group. And, um, I think that the input that you put in is fantastic. And as I, you know, I always stalk people that I, that interest me, um, from there. And I got to watch a video on YouTube where you and Dobie are uh, doing an interview. And I also looked at your bio and stuff and you're just all over the place and stuff that you've done. Um, and I wanted to go back to the beginning for you and find out when comedy first started making a spark with you. What, what inspired you to even have an interest in stand up comedy in the business? Um, that's, that's an interesting and a long story. We've got the time. Yeah. <laughs> first time it occurred to me to, that there would be such a thing as a career in comedy. I was still in college and a friend of mine and I were the, the funny guys on campus. You know, uh -huh. if you needed, 
funny copy for the newspaper you came to us. Mm. We had reputations. And uh, before we graduated, he said to me uh, one day, why don't we uh, take a year off after we graduate and try and become stand-up comics? Well, this was 1967, Uh. there were no comedy clubs. There were nightclubs, strip clubs, (laughs) and the Catskills. Yeah. (laughs) And occasionally a coffee house in New York or San Francisco would put up a comic. But between the coasts, you worked strip clubs or nightclubs. Uh. There were no comedy clubs. There was no place for someone to start doing comedy. There were somehow people became comics elsewhere and then showed up at a nightclub. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how the process worked. The Catskills, I know, were part of it. But for a Chicago Italian kid, the Catskills were not really accessible. Uh-huh. So we talked about it. We had no idea what you'd even do. You know, our, uh, our hero was Bob Newhart, who's, who started in a studio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he had already had a successful album before he got hired to do live show. Right. Yeah. Now, where'd they have it? We moved to New York or something for all. Yeah. Well, that Sunday, I mentioned it to my parents. And it was like one of those moments in the soap opera where everything stops and then there's close-ups of people's eyes going left and then right. My mother and father just looking at each other like, is this a nervous breakdown? <laughs> what do we do? Do we call the teachers? Do we call the doctor? Who do we call? So I played it off. We were just joking and never uh-huh. thought about it again. Became a teacher, which made my mom happy. And which was my goal going into college. Uh, then my dad, who owned a trucking company, got sick. And I quit teaching. And I said I'd run the trucking company for him, thinking he, his days were were limited. Mm-hmm. And they were. But I thought I was thinking two or three years, and he lasted 13. <laughs> and that's how long I ran a trucking company and just hated it yeah. every day. <laughs> Well, about six months before he died, I'm over visiting. He says, we have to go in the back room, which puzzled me because the only other person in the house was my mom, and she knew everything. Mm. The only reason that we'd have to be alone is that he was going to (laughs) swear because we didn't swear in front of mom. Uh (laughs) So what did I do now? Uh, He sits me down. He says, I've never thanked you. Thank me for what? And he said, well, if you hadn't come into the company, I would have sold it. And by now, I'd be on welfare. He was on dialysis for 13 years. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so uh, not only did it, it keep me financially alive and prepare your mom, she'll be fine when I'm gone. Mm-hmm. He said, but mentally, he said, I, I started working at that company when I was in high school. Uh-huh. And now I own it. And it was, in a lot of ways, my life. And mm. While I'm on the machine, I'm thinking, how many loads are we going to pull today? As <laughs> yeah. soon as I get off the machine, I call you up, and did you take the, the diesel in for a checkup and blah, 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 blah. So I was like, yeah, well, you're welcome. <laughs> he said, but that's not what I want to talk to you about. 
He says, uh, I, I thank you, but you're not very good at it. <laughs> he said, it kept me alive, but it's killing you. Yeah. And that's not what a father, That's that was never my goal. He mm. said, so when I'm gone, I want you to get rid of it, and I want you to chase your dream. He said, you may not be lucky. Not everybody is lucky as I am. You may not catch it. Uh-huh. But if you don't chase it, you will have missed the reason we're put on this earth, and I'll come back and I'll fuck with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we know why we're in the back rooms. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was an incredible conversation to have. My father and I didn't, didn't have those deep talks. Right. And we you were, that. you were about how old at that time? 37. Okay. Okay. Well, he passed away. I sold the business. I have no idea what my dream is. Uh-huh. So I buy a bar because, you know, <laughs> if you're in your 30s and you're a guy, why not? Yep. <laughs> and that was fun for about a year. Then I get a call from the guy from college who I hadn't seen maybe 10 years at the time. He says, come have a drink with me Tuesday night. Okay bar about a block from where I was living. And I get there. Turns out the reason he invited me is it's an open mic and he's uh, going up. Yeah. <laughs> and now he wants to show up. You know how guys are. Oh yeah. 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 So <laughs> it's a little bit of a we had a little bit of a competitive thing in our relationship mm. going all the way back. So I said, oh, that was very good. Are you are you gonna do that next week? He said, Yes. Run home. I still Start writing a mile a minute. The very first mistake of many that I made in the first few years. Yeah. The next week, he goes back up. As soon as he's done, next guy's introduced, and it's me. And <laughs> I could not tell you a single word that I said. And I couldn't when I came off stage that night. I had given, I'd actually given a sheet to someone who came with me, and I said, okay, just follow along. Put a mark if I forget something. When I came off, I said, "What did I? What did I say?" I have no- uh-huh. <laughs> Let me see the sheet. <laughs> well, what I do remember is, as soon as I touched the mic for the very first time, I heard my father on this shoulder talking into this ear. Uh-huh. That's my father's voice. I yeah. recognize my father's voice. If it was just in my head, why would I recognize it in just one ear? Yeah. I don't know. Uh-huh. But he had been gone a year and a half, two years. And what I heard was, remember that Sunday back then? Maybe this is your dream. Mm-hmm. So I went back the next week. And three weeks they were asking if I would MC that weekend because this was the boom. Uh-huh. And if you could stand on stage for five minutes without fainting, <laughs> you were in. Yeah. And then uh, never looked back within a year. Uh, that's how I was supporting myself in stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did for the next dozen years full-time with stand-up. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my story. Yeah, that is a great story. I have to say um, I'm a little pissed off uh, because when you said you were in college in 67, I was born in 64, and I had us being that close to same age. So uh, you, right. you, you Italians, the way you guys age... <laughs> 
drives me crazy. Oil. We just rub it in and rub it in. <laughs> you look good. You look good. <laughs> One of the things it's kind of it's kind of, a couple things came up that were funny um, when you talk about what I call stage amnesia. The funny thing is, is I'm having a discussion with one of my friends who, who's a comic that, um, uh, we're reading the same book. It's, uh, it's called, um, not good yet by, uh, it's a guy I interviewed, Mark something. Um, uh, anyway, um, he talks about stage amnesia and why it's important to record yourself because you, you don't know what happened once you get off stage. And I think it's funny because, uh, we're, we're trading, uh, fa- Facebook messenger posts back and forth. And the last one I read before you came on was talking about the stage amnesia. And I, I think that's, that's funny. Um, but one it's thing, adrenaline, by the way, I'm sorry. That's a, that's a side effect of adrenaline. Yeah. People don't realize that, but adrenaline puts you in the moment. But it also uses uh, short-term memory to keep you in the moment. It, yeah. it blocks off short-term memory, mm-hmm. so you're not there going, "Oh, I, I'm going to have to remember this." Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to focus. Yeah. So it, it puts blinders on you, and that's one of the reasons you should always record because otherwise, it's gone. You lose it. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that that struck me is that um, you were a businessman for, you know, a dozen years before you got into comedy. Yeah. In a matter of speaking. Well. Uh, he was absolutely right. I was not good at it. Yeah. Yeah. But to keep, to keep, to keep something afloat, um, you, you have to have a certain type of business sense and you have to understand, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And I feel like, um, a lot of the comics I talked to that didn't necessarily start when they were, you know, 15, like Gilbert Gottfried did or something like that, um, that have that business sense going into it. They seem to, um, they, they seem to get better quicker, um, simply because you can step back from yourself and, and take a look, um, that's, a, it, you, you're a little bit more critical, um, um, and you know what works and what doesn't work. And you, it seems like you don't you don't stay on a, a, a certain type of act for too long because you know it just doesn't work. You- well, I think that's a big part of it. I think another part of it is think of your audience. Uh, a lot of people get stuck at the open mic level because their audience is just like them. Unemployed twenty-two-year-olds. Yeah, 22-year-olds. yeah. <laughs> but unemployed twenty-two-year-olds can't pay your rent for you. That's right. You have to depend on people who have actual jobs, responsibilities, children. Yeah, all of those life things that a lot of young comics just don't have. Right. So not only is it uh, not connecting with your own responsibilities. It's not having that common ground of responsibility with the people that you're trying to entertain. Mm-hmm. I think that made a huge difference. I, I was in my late 30s when I started, and my audiences, the, my paying audiences, <laughs> are my age group and older. Right. So I can talk about things that that are important to, to both of us. Yes. And better than a 22-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Most- it has nothing to do with funny. It has to do with connecting. Yeah, 
most definitely and uh get making that connection right from the beginning is just it's so important because if you don't make it then nothing nothing works at all it just uh you you lose the audience you lose yourself the uh the adrenaline hurts you a lot more than it helps you it's just not good people will laugh at at an abstract uh joke Mm -hmm. over the course of of an hour and a half what they want is something that they connect to their own lives. Mm. Throw me it out of left field, funny, funny. Yeah. yeah okay, great. But I'm not going to sit here for an hour and a half and listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're too self-centered for that to work. Yeah. Now, when you started out, were you, were you in the Chicago scene the, the, the whole time when you started out? Oh, yeah. You, yeah. You know, you, you grow where you're planted. Right. So when you're when you're doing the open mics and starting to get on the showcases and stuff like that, did you did you meet some people that were um, maybe a little further along that helped you out and uh, brought you along? Did you have any mentors along the way? Tons of them, and and I, I like to take that all the way back to Tom Dreesen, yeah, Chicago's own, yeah. That Tom actually started the Chicago scene. Mm-hmm. There was comedy in Chicago before Tom Dreesen. It was out of town, or even Chicago guys like like uh, Newhart, who had gone out of town and come back, Yeah, and were doing nightclubs that had national acts. Right. But there was no place to start in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So Tom Dreesen started two little one-nighters, um, and every. Every one of the OG Chicago comics started at those two little one night things. Mm. And I was fortunate enough pretty early on to, to hook up with se- several of those comics. Jimmy Wiggins personally was the one I connected to the most. Mm. He became my, my actual mentor as I went along, but I knew all those guys and I learned from all those guys. Ted Holm and Fiala, uh, and then, well, Tom himself. I, I was a writer. Tom had a had a brief TV show in Chicago, and I was one of his staff writers. Mm-hmm. I've just learned so much from Tom. Yeah, yeah. Ken Severa, just a whole emo, and Judy Tenuta, and there's a whole just a whole generation. Yeah, of great Chicago comics that started with Tom and mm-hmm. uh, and. And then brought along the next group and passed it on. I, I think there was at least a half generation after me that got in on that. And then, of course, once the boom collapsed, there was a little disjunction. And and it it was sad to see five, six, seven years later, open mics having to start with no connectivity to the old school guy. Uh-huh. By that time, the clubs that were still going strong had stopped doing open mic night. So if you wanted an open mic, you started it in a bar someplace. Yeah. And there's a lot of comics, and I put that in quotation marks, in Chicago now, who if you say Tom Dreesen, they shake their head like, who? That, say, yeah. Well, they go, yeah, yeah. He, does, does he run a mic someplace? <laughs> <laughs> open micing has become its own category, very different and disconnected 
from the stand-up scene. Yeah, that was a a fairly con- contiguous tree mm-hmm. going back to the mid seventies. I agree that a hundred percent with that a hundred percent because uh, every every working comic who is making a living doing comedy knows Tom Dreesen and uh, has either has either been affected by Tom uh, because he helped him out in some way or at least knows who he is. And yet, uh, just like you said, you go to an open mic or you, you talk to a young comic that has, you know, not done anything yet. And you say Tom Dreesen, they're like, who? And, uh, it's funny. I get the same thing with like, like Bob Zaney. Bob Zaney is one of my favorites. And, uh, you, you mentioned him and some of the younger people go, who? And I'm like, you know, these are, these, these are two people who, you know, each in their own way redefined how comedy's done. And, and, it, and here's the thing. I know and can quote some lines from Will Rogers who was dead before I was born. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a question of, well, they're not around, so I don't know them. You are actively engaged in a business that has history. It behooves you to know that history. Yeah. And the... And, and the funny thing is, is a lot of, a lot of the young folks, uh, they say, well, comedy's different now. Uh, guess what? It's exactly the same as it was. <laughs> it's, it, it's either funny or it isn't. And, uh, and you, you have different topics, uh, you know, uh, there's different boundaries and stuff like that now, but you know what? It's, it's, uh, make them laugh. And, uh, a lot of the people who say comedy is different now have not been to comedy shows. Yeah. <laughs> they organized open mics. They, they, they do six open mics a week. Yeah. But open mics are different than comedy. Yeah. But yeah. Comedy. Now I, I shouldn't say that because we, we sit talking during an event, which I've been predicting every conversation I've had for the last month. Comedy is going to be different. Yeah. It may come back in some form that we recognize and connect to the way it was in 2016, in 98, Mm. in 87. But right now in America, there are 10,000 people who think of themselves as comedian, comedians trying to figure out how to how to create a revenue stream yeah. without putting people into a room. Yeah, yeah. And somebody's going to do it. Yeah. And, and well, a lot of people are trying to do it, but someone's going to do it successfully. Yes, yes, yeah. And I, I'm dying to find out what they figure out. Yeah, yeah. And if it stands the test of time of when, you know, this is all over and, and you can go back to clubs, if if that if that works through that, then they've d- definitely got something, and that w- will be the the biggest change I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I put in a lot of years as a teacher, too, mm-hmm. and uh, I look at what's happening now with the long-distance education, and I think, how how is, how is no one talking about when we go back? When we have a vaccine and a cure, why aren't we talking about closing a lot of the schools, and doing double duty. Kids go for three days 
and then two days of homeschooling. You could run two different faculties and two different student bodies out of the same building six days a week instead of five. Mm -hmm. You go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then two days distance learning. Mm -hmm. The other kids go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then every semester you switch. You switch, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You need half the buildings, half the space. Yeah. And that still gives the kids a uh, opportunity to uh, understand the the social the right. social aspect of learning and and getting along with other kids and stuff like that too. So that yeah, that definitely makes sense uh, to do something like that. Think of the budgets. You know that would uh, that would uh, totally uh, building budgets are uh, just astronomical just for electric. So you know. To be able to eliminate, uh, you know, say you eliminate in a uh, a twelve school district, if you could eliminate six of them, that's that's a lot of money. But I do hear I do hear parents scream bloody murder. Yeah, uh, two days a week with my kids. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> that is a problem. If, if you had a, a household where all, all the adults are at work, yeah, you can't have a two a second grader at home doing homeschooling. Yeah. But it is an option that needs to be explored because it makes so much financial sense, especially if we're actually getting good at mm -hmm. long-distance lear learning. Yeah, exactly. Um, so thinking about thinking about when you, you, you're in your 30s and you start doing comedy, what did it take for you um, to go from – you know, that open mic with dad talking in your ear saying this, this is, this is what you want to do. What, what, what kind of time or what kind of effort did it take for you to actually start making a living doing comedy then? The first year, uh, I substitute taught that year. And like I said, I, I was fortunate being part of the boom. I was I was earning making money. I wasn't earning a living yet, mm. but from the first year, I, I earned uh, enough money to supplement substitute teaching money. Mm. Neither one of which is a bonanza, <laughs> but together I paid my rent. And yeah. Paid my the second year, I taught part time. I'm, the, the school where I student taught, I I cut a deal. I said I will work for. I work part time for even less than part time salary, but full time benefits. Mm. So I kept my health insurance, paid into a pension plan, and really the second year, most of my income was from comedy. And by year three, I didn't need the school income; I just went full time. Okay. Because year three, I knew that I had to hit the road. Yeah. I, great. It was great coming up in a in a big city like Chicago, particularly because of the supportive community in Chicago. Mm. But as, as my friend Al Alter used to say, I, you move to Chicago to get good enough so you can can earn money in Springfield. Yeah. <laughs> we get paid, as you know, we get paid for the miles. We yeah. don't get paid for the show. Most of us would do shows for free if we had to. Mm -hmm. yeah. As long as you paid me to get there and home. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, yeah. 
So when the when the traveling starts, what did you start working with an agency or did you did you book your own shows or how did that work out for you? I I never was a, was at the level where anyone wanted even twenty percent of the money I was making, uh-huh. nor did I want to give someone twenty percent yeah. of the money I was making. Um, but I was working all the time, and and it's it was. When you were uh, emceeing and featuring, contemplating paying someone to get you emcee and feature work was stupid. Yeah. But I was, I averaged during the first probably six years, I averaged five, six shows a week. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, the way that I knew that, that, uh, that the boom was over. Is by the time I started closing shows, I was making just about the same money <laughs> as I had been as an MC. Yeah, I was working five, six times as many shows as an MC as I was as a headliner. Yeah. So the fact <laughs> that I was making so much more a show seemed rather immaterial. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't book. Yeah. Enough shows to to appreciate the the increase. Yeah. Now, when you were traveling, did you uh, do kind of a Midwest thing, or were you doing coast-to-coast? Regional always appealed to me more because you could get home more. Mm. Still paying rent on it. I never never took that leap of being the road guy who didn't have a fixed address. Yeah. I guys who did, <laughs> yeah. and that just seemed hard. Uh, plus, I had a daughter. I had a family. Mm. And uh, although we were separated, I still wanted to be home for my for my daughter. Mm-hmm. So, but I I work uh, just about all of east of the Mississippi and some west of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was all by car because again, if you're if you're when you're featuring, the idea of flying in is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So, wait. So I lose money for the week. I no. I don't. Yeah. No. I, I was. Uh, I was very phlegmatic about my my long term goals. Keep uh-huh. in mind, starting when I was almost forty, with a family, I knew I was never going to move to either coast. Mm-hmm. Can I make a living? Can I pay my bills? I need to do that. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of the young people who started at the same time I did. Uh, they made a conscious decision. Rather than hit the road, spend a lot more time at the A clubs in Chicago, networking mm-hmm. with with the national comics, and that paid off for them when they moved to either coast. Yeah, either they got gigs as writers to start out with, mm-hmm. or they got some stage time by being bootstrapped up. Mm-hmm. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I I'm a huge proponent of networking, but I'm also a realist, what are your long-term goals and how is networking going to help your long-term goals? Uh-huh. The people I networked with were the comics who after 10 years were also living in Chicago and making a good living. Mm. That's what I needed to know how to do. Yeah. And, and networking, I, I, I still feel networking is is very important because you're not gonna you're not gonna get um, 
as far as fast if you don't have somebody in your corner and somebody that's rooting for you. But comedy is a meritocracy. You have to, it's, it's, it's how good you are. And, and it's between you and the audience. And, you know, a, another comic can put a good word in for you. That's, that's a few rungs up the ladder from you. Um, but, you know, in, in the end, you got to get in front of the audience and kill it. And, and, um, and that's, that's how you really get the exposure in the stage time. I, I think you, it's hard to outrun your actual talent by more than 5%. Yeah. <laughs> Occasionally you'll catch a lucky break. But that's your level of incompetence is pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the that's the businessman talking. Uh, that you know, that's that that's the old adage of uh, um, you're always going to get promoted into a place where they discover you're incompetent and fire yeah. you. <laughs> it's a <theater> principle. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, a good networking can get you to your level of incompetence the quickest yep. possible way. Yep. Yep. And a lot, a lot of folks, um, you know, some of them that I've talked to, um, I don't know if you've ever run into Mike Bova, but I talked to him, um, uh, was it last week? I think, uh, I think it was last week. And, and the funny thing is, is, you know, he got kind of thrown into comedy and it was, uh, something that he didn't expect. And, you know, his first set was 45 minutes and, and, uh, uh, you talk about getting thrown into a level of incompetency, but you know, he, he, he treaded water and he said it was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but it was good enough that he wanted to keep doing it. And so, you know, he's been, he, he was one, another one that, you know, started a little bit later in life and, and, uh, decided that that was the way he wanted to go and it's worked well for him. I, um, I think it's I think it's uh very interesting that you have um you you did a business like approach to doing the comedy but uh let's talk a little bit about the the love of being on stage and doing the comedy itself you know obviously you you got to find a voice and you got to find out you know who you're going to be on stage and um, what what was that, what was it like for you to find out who you were and be able to connect with the audience and get that feedback that just made it something that you wanted to do for the rest of your life? Um, I, I I was a writer learning how to perform. Uh-huh. Um, I think every stand up is either a writer learning to perform or a performer learning to write, and I was absolutely a writer who's still learning how to perform. Uh-huh. I, uh, I don't miss the stage when I'm not on it. Okay. But I would absolutely shoot myself if I thought I was never going to <laughs> be in the room with a bunch of other comics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, I like the company of the creative people and I like the process of being funny by myself or with others. Mm. The, Selling it on stage is the hard part for me. It always has been. Mm. In terms of finding my voice, though, that's something that that's an interactive on-stage experience. You, I don't think anyone can really find their voice 
with a paper and pencil. I, I think maybe maybe novelists can or poets, mm-hmm. but in stand-up, you are you need to be both. Whichever, whether you're left-handed or right-handed, whether you're a writer or a performer, eventually you're going to need competence in both. And I think that that uh, voice in particular is a function of the performer filtering the work of the writer, mm. not the other way around. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I, I don't know if you... It's almost a, a tangible electric type of thing when you find out who you are uh, when you're up there because it's been you know I I didn't start until I was fifty and uh, you know I I messed around for you know probably four years not understanding what kind of comedy I wanted to do and then when I finally got it it just it was it was electric and it, it felt you know it felt like oh th- well this is who i am and you know all the writing goes to that now and all, all the stuff that you did before just doesn't make any sense i think part of it is when you let when you let your vulnerability out there's a certain electricity involved in that mm-hmm. uh, if you were if you were doing uh psychoanalysis rather than stand-up comedy, you'd say you had a breakthrough. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's what it feels like, and it's, uh, it's actually kind of emotional. And, and you know, I, I remember the, that first time when it went really well for me, and, it, you know, when people come up to you and say, you'd, say you know, you did great, and, uh, and, and that uh, it was... It was uh, it was great to hear you do your comedy and, you know, it, it really hit with me and stuff like that. That's, that's the coolest thing. And, uh, and it was funny. I actually got paid a little bit for that show too. So it was, you know, it was a double, double good one. <laughs> i tell you uh, something along those lines that I, I learned my, in my, probably my second or third year, um, I was starting to feature on the road and, uh, if you've had this experience, you, you'll rec- identify immediately. Uh, I wrote and wrote and wrote, and I'd add five to ten new minutes of material a week. Now, remember, when I say that, I was doing five or six shows. So yeah. It wasn't that difficult to add new stuff. Right. And I'm a good writer, purposeful writer, and a lot of the new stuff would work. But it seemed like I still always only had a half hour's worth of dependable material. Uh-huh. I talked to uh, one of my roommates at the time. I, I lived in this great four bedroom that was almost all comics uh-huh. for 20 years. It was a, just a <laughs> comedy commune. And uh, AJ Lentini's his name. He said, uh, you're moving in the fences. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when you start out, you're doing five minutes. If you've got five minutes of funny stuff, it could be old jokes. It could be knock-knock jokes. Mm-hmm. If they're funny, people will laugh because in five minutes, all they're expecting from you are jokes. He says, but for a half hour, they're expecting something more. Mm-hmm. So as you work, the things that they are going to react most strongly to are the ones that are the most, e- the easiest for them to believe 
are about you. Yep. So the fences get narrower and narrower, and there's fewer jokes. So a joke that you used to be able to get laughs with because it was inside the fences hadn't changed at all. You haven't, you're not telling it differently, but now it's outside the fences. Yep. Yeah. So I, uh, I thought I understood what he meant, and then I went out the road right around Valent- or, uh, Halloween. Mm-hmm. And for years in, in Chicago, as an MC, you know, you have a lot of holiday jokes. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of weather jokes because they're the easiest way to make it sound like you're fresh. Yeah, yeah. About today and now. Well, I had a, a Halloween joke that always, always worked. I didn't even like it. I didn't <laughs> even get it. But it always worked. It was uh, It's so sad these days. I took my daughter trick-or-treating. Then we have to take the treats to the hospital to get them x-rayed. So sad. And this year especially, because they found a spot on the gingerbread man's lung, he had to pay three extra days for tests and shit. Now, I I don't know why it worked, but it always worked. Yeah. Public comics wanted to buy the joke from me. I can't. Oh, no, I can't. My Halloween joke. (laughs) Flash forward a couple of years. I'm on the road, and it's Halloween. I call home. My daughter's... 12, right when they start thinking maybe they're not going to go trick-or-treating. So I call, you're going to go trick-or-treating? Yes, I am. What are you going to dress as? She says, a hippie. So I go on stage that night and I go, I hate Halloween. You know what it's like? Just talk to my daughter. She's going trick-or-treating. Three, four months, she's sitting there going, what would be really scary? Oh, I know. How about my dad's youth? (laughs) Now, I got a nice little laugh. I think because uh, the word youth is funny. Yeah. But it was also a, a little piece of vulnerability. In my head, I'm thinking, well, if that got a laugh, wait till they hear the gingerbread man's joke. Uh-huh. Predictably, looking back, I tell that uh, he had a straight three extra days from test. Here's the reaction. <laughs> In other words, you just told us something that we believed was true. You got it. Yeah. And now you're telling us just a joke. Yeah. Well, yeah. I thought you wanted to hear jokes. Eh, not yeah. for a half hour. Yeah. For a half hour, we wanted it. We want to hear you funny. Uh huh. Yep. Now, if you if you can do that in the form of jokes and kind of hide them in there in the conversation, uh-huh. great. But yep. we want to hear you funny. Yeah. Yeah, and when you're when you're being you on stage, it's uh, it's a lot more tags than it is punchlines. It's it, it, yeah. it, well, things keep occurring to you because it's yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's for for me particularly. That is the only way I can remember remember my material is if it if it comes from me. If it's something that I write that is um, you know during this during this. Um, mm-hmm. COVID stuff, you know, it's been hard for me to write, you know, it's because you don't, you don't see an end to it. Um, you know, I'm not socializing. The The only family member I'm with is my wife most of the time. And, you know, the kids, I've got kids and one in Alabama and one in DC. So, you know, we're not seeing them like we normally do. So there's nothing, nothing new to write. So I'm forcing myself to write these current events jokes. So I'll pull up USA Today. And I got that from, from Zany when, when I was talking to him, he says, you know, every day I open up USA Today and uh, write a few jokes from that. And Sometimes they work and sometimes I don't, but I make myself write those out. I don't remember them. I have to write them out because I have no idea what I wrote. And then forget about them. Yeah. Yeah. 
but oh yeah yeah but you it's, want to keep the muscle yeah yeah it's just yeah it's just just so i can uh just so i can uh remember how to write so when something actually comes up i can put it down on paper before this all happened for about a year or so i'd been hosting uh a writer's circle at my house every other sunday mm-hmm. i got about 40 comics the the word goes out we're going to have one this sunday this time and uh, the first seven people to sign up that's the circle mm-hmm. and uh Got a table in my basement just covered with snacks, and we're great. Mm-hmm. Well, now we tried doing it on online hard. It is. Hard. Yeah. So uh, last Sunday, I had my first one in my yard because the weather was good, and we kept social distance. And it was just four of us. Uh-huh. People don't really – we didn't work on material. We worked on theory of material. When this is over, what – can and can't we talk about? Yeah. Obviously, we have to talk about what just happened because if you ever shared something with an audience, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine during the depression doing comedy without talking about the depression. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. How did you afford tickets? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's part of it. The other part of it, though, is. You think about all the things that are going on during this common experience, which divide us. So it's like saying, you know, the law of the land says abortion is legal. So clearly we can talk about it on stage. Eh, whichever mm. position you take, if you take a position, yeah. Yeah. you've divided the audience. So let's talk about what's happened for the last two, three months, but let's talk about it in either minute terms or huge terms. But it, if you just do it the way we've had to look at it, that, that sort of fixed focus, 10 feet away snapshot, yeah, everybody's tired of that snapshot. Yeah, yeah. Rich, write a bit about sourdough bread. For, yeah. Go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but don't talk about masks. We're yeah. done talking about masks. Yeah, no doubt. But yeah, just, I... The only way that's going to work is is really personal experiences and not necessarily be not necessarily the personal experience of going through the the quarantine and the pandemic but you know how how you coped and 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 things things crazy things that you did that uh that got you through it and I I I do have my in mind a bit because I've I've got a grandson out there in the D.C. area and he's going to turn two in a couple months and the all the video chats that we do with him you know there's a lot of, a lot of good material in that because he's starting to talk and 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 all that all that good stuff so I think you know that type of thing would work because it's a little bit heartwarming and it's not it, it, it's sad that we can't be out there but it's nice that we at least have the technology to talk to him and be face to face with him first thing i thought of when you told me about your situation was uh you were there when you got married was there any time in the vows when you thought i promise to be with you 24 7 for three months at some portion of our lives yeah. no. no that's good yeah yeah seriously think of how many couples in an audience if you do a bit about, I love my wife, 
boy. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that my backyard was at least three square miles. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh, and, and, and a shed was... Just looking at each other going, I yeah. love you too, honey. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that. That's definitely true, and that that I, I could get a lot of material out of that. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, w- one of the things that you've done is, uh, you know, you talk about the the writing group. You've obviously you have obviously got uh, a lot of um, friends, clout connections in the Chicago area, um, and you've done a lot of teaching and uh, of coaching of of comics. Can you run me through that when that started and how you got into it and and what you what what you've gotten out of that and and people that you've worked with? Um, and again, I think part of it is a function of of starting when I was older and I'd already been had ten years of, of professional teaching in my on my resume. Um, I I tend to be naturally analytical. Mm-hmm. So when I when I started doing stand up, I was a sponge and just wanted every every comic I worked with, whether they had more or less experience than me, I didn't care. Tell me what you know. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you know. And uh, I I tried codifying it as I went along, and by the time I've been in maybe five six years, I got a. a part-time gig teaching uh, uh, sort of an adult extension class at Columbia College in Chicago. And uh, that was that was kind of fun. I did it for a couple of semesters. And then uh, then I got too busy. I was doing other stuff. Mm. And uh, about 15 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, Dobie Maxwell the, of the Maxwell Method, mm. uh, he was. He had been teaching a class at Zanies, which is is a, a our our sort of a original comedy club yeah. here in Chicago. One of the originals, still open, still going strong, sort of considering. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, he'd been teaching it, and was kind of uh, burning out on it a little bit. And he knew that I had taught a class, and that I. Uh, I was constantly threatening to write a book about what I knew, mm. which I haven't. <laughs> um, but he asked me if I would be willing to sit in and help him out a little bit. Sure, why not? And uh, we co-taught for a while. And then uh, he just said, yeah, you do it, and I'll teach I'll teach the advanced session. Mm. He never. There's never been an advanced <laughs> session. I've been teaching the beginners class for going on twelve years, maybe. Uh-huh. And they keep asking. I threatened to teach it, but to me, that's that's something that Dobie said he was going to do, and let them bug Dobie. What I, as long <laughs> as I'm teaching the beginners class, I'm quite happy. Yeah. So when you're doing when you're doing this teaching you've obviously seen a whole bunch of students can can you break it down to different types of comics that you've seen it it seems like 
it seems like I see like maybe three or four different types of comics. Do you, do you see different types come through the class that are just naturally that way? Or how, how, how do you size them up when, when they get started? I, because it's the beginner's class, probably I tend not to categorize them as comics, but as people, Mm -hmm. uh, Unfortunately, in a beginner's class, what you get are a lot of people who want to show you their impression of a stand-up comic. Mm. And the the worst thing you can do as a stand-up comic is to be a different stand-up comic than who you are. Yeah, yeah. It starts with who you are as a human being, and you you sort of sharpen that into a stand-up comic rather than here's what a stand-up comic looks like to me. The analogy I always use is if you ever watch the Little League baseball game and you see this eight-year-old go up to the plate, very carefully knock the mud off their spikes, take their their stance, and you're laughing your ass off because, A, (laughs) there's no mud, and B, they're not wearing spikes. Yeah. (laughs) What are you doing? But they've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> they want to look like, no. Yeah. Focus on the ball. Yeah. The ball. Stop <laughs> worrying about your spikes or where the trademark on the back. Uh-huh. Get the ball. <laughs> and, and with stand-ups or with, with uh, beginners, a lot of time they, they want to show how much they look like a stand-up comic. Well, or, or sound like, or write in the manner of. Mm-hmm. And, and it is absolutely the wrong end of the stick to grab a hold of. There are things you can learn from watching other stand-up comics, but the number one thing on the list, if you watch every great stand-up comic, is be yourself, or at least be someone that we can believe is yourself. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a great actor and you can convince us that you're somebody – completely different from who you really are. Yeah. God bless you. Yeah. Well, like Larry, the cable guy, you know, he, 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 he's worked that for years. Or or Rodney Dangerfield. Yep. Yep. Who got more respect than Rodney Dangerfield? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nobody. Right. Right. He's the most respected comic in America. Uh, so you've got these. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No doubt. So you've got, you've got these fresh faces coming in and, uh, you know, obviously they, they all have different goals and ambitions. Uh, but, uh, have you ever seen any naturals, anybody that just, just, you know, you just say, okay, you're it, you're, you're somebody who should be doing this. Or you're someone who could be doing it. Yeah. I hate using words like should. Yeah, yeah. A little too aggressive. Yeah. (laughs) uh, You're someone who could be doing it. And I'd say about half of the ones who could be doing it um, want to. Uh And unfortunately, that's part of it, too. Yeah. You don't want to do it, then really, then you shouldn't. Right. I'm much much more willing to tell you what you shouldn't Mm. than tell you what you should. Yeah. Should is your choice, but shouldn't. We all get a voice in there. Yeah. If I don't tell you, audiences will. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> uh, and that happens maybe 
every other class, someone will come up and I'll go, ooh, I can see, I can see where, you know, that, that's a seed that has already germinated a little bit. And uh, it'd be interesting if they let it grow. Mm-hmm. Now, have you have you seen any of those uh, in the years that you've done it? Have you seen anybody um, actually make it? Oh yeah, I, I've got comics out there. I don't want I don't want to name names. Yeah. Less than oh, I won't ask you to. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, got to be a great it, feeling. It's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, not as great as the three students that I've had in in regular school became school principals. Yeah. Or the, yeah. <laughs> or the dozens who became teachers. That's something. Yeah. That's something. I mean, it's just bigger. Right. Right. But not bad. I'll take, I'll take the other as well. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, one of the things you talked about early on, I always like to, I always like to hit on something that will actually um, resonate with the people who are listening. Cause this is for, uh, you know, new comics and comics that want to get better. Um, you talked about, um, the adrenaline effect and, and how that's not necessarily a good thing. It's, it's the thing that gets you on stage sometimes, but it's not, it, it keeps you from being in the moment. Um, what, what types of, what types of exercises and things do you teach the comics to kind of work off that adrenaline so that they they're still there they still got you know enough uh, enough um energy to go up there and do well but you know they're not so hyped up that they're that they're talking as fast as i am right now you know <laughs> the, the only thing really that shuts off that adrenaline flow is experience mm. uh, it's behavioral uh, therapy work where you face the same thing, which your amygdala identifies as a threat, you face it long enough that eventually you condition that amygdala to not recognize it as a threat. Mm. That can take years. Yeah, and I've talked to comics who, like like I have, recognize that that gradual decline in the effects of adrenaline. You go. You know, I wish I had just a little bit more. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't miss any of it. Yeah. Here's the effects of adrenaline. We think of it as energizing. It's also sweat making. Yeah. <laughs> it's also focus narrowing. Yeah. It's also skin tailing. It butterfly. Those are the effects of adrenaline. Mm. And none of them work in the modern world most of the time. Adrenaline and the adrenal gland was was part of our evolutionary history when we lived a much more dangerous life day to day. Mm. People, people in the modern world have to book adrenaline experiences. I'm going to jump out of an airplane next month. Yeah. <laughs> God bless you. Yeah. But your great-great-great-grandparents just had to walk to the outhouse to have that same possibility of snakes and bears and pumas. Uh-huh. Right now, the, the fight or flight is one of the most useless things left to us most of the time. Mm. You, you, you're going to ask your boss for a raise on Monday. Which do you prefer, fight or flight? Are you going to run home at lunchtime so you can 
avoid the meeting or are you going to go up and beat him up until he gives you a raise? Yeah. Mm. In in the 21st century, the survival skill we need more is the third one, the non-adrenaline play dead until the bear goes away skill. Yeah. <laughs> the be cool skill, don't ever let him see you sweat skill. Yeah. And you can't do that with adrenaline. Right. Adrenaline makes it hard to be cool. That's why cool people don't get adrenaline. Yeah. <laughs> I actually I had a comic friend of mine we were talking about how do we know other comics when they we see them? Comics can spot other comics. Uh-huh. And his his reason was easy. He said, oh, I've always thought the comic was always the coolest person in the room. Uh-huh. And there's something to be said about that as long as you don't hang out with jazz musicians. Yeah. We <laughs> look like idiots. But uh, so what do you do to, to mitigate the influence of adrenaline before you go up on stage? As long as your amygdala sees that still as a possible danger, risk, threat, you're going to get adrenaline. Two things that I have discovered and I preached endlessly. Number one, adrenaline is a very uh, short-lived hormone. If it lasted more than five minutes, your body would blow up. Mm. Yep. It's why you see so many comics at an open mic do a hot two minutes at a mile a minute, and then they look at you like... <laughs> I've suddenly blanked on everything else. Well, that was the adrenaline. Yeah. You, you ran out. You ran out. Yeah. And yeah, now you got nothing left. Mm-hmm. So what you do is, before you go on stage, burn off the adrenaline. Jumping jacks, pacing, anything that activates your the big muscles of your lower body. Mm. Even if it's just going up on your toes and back down rapidly for a couple of minutes. It's amazing how much adrenaline you can burn off before you hit the stage. Mm. The second thing I thought I invented, but I didn't. (laughs) Two cups of coffee, which sounds so counterproductive. But turns out caffeine uses the same receptors in our brain as adrenaline does. Okay. So you're really blocking the adrenaline. Yeah. You you go, uh, you, your body goes, oh, I'll make some, ad- oh, you, you, uh, you got that cup. Never mind. <laughs> okay. The cool thing about caffeine is, as we all know, we've all had a caffeine buzz. It goes up and then it plateaus for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Here's how adrenaline goes. Yeah. Four minutes. Yeah. So even if you still get an adrenaline buzz, why you got a caffeine high going? It's just like a little pimple. Yeah. When the adrenaline runs out, you don't even notice because you still got caffeine. Yeah. That you're sleeping at. Yeah, you, the adrenaline's gone by the time you get behind the mic. Yeah. But you you have to adapt to the adrenaline, the, the caffeine buzz. Right. But the thing about caffeine is we can practice using caffeine. Most of us do every single day. Yeah. Sometimes twice. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> Get on the coffee bandwagon. Yeah, that 
that that really makes sense and i had never thought of that before but yeah that that totally that totally makes sense and one of the things i've i've done because uh you know comedy is such a mental thing and it's the the mental state that you are in that causes the adrenaline is um you know when i'm sitting there like for an open mic or whatever um i've I make it a point to really pay attention to the comics that go before me instead of thinking about my act. Uh, and you know, even, even if it's stuff I've heard, you know, a hundred times or whatever, I, I really pay attention to what they are saying and get in the moment with them and try to be a good audience member. And then when it's my turn, it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I just go up and do my thing. So it's, it's, yeah, it's just a, it's just a mental trick I have to play on myself. It does a few things for you, but the main two. Number one, if you listen to all the other comics, you you know what the audience where the audience is at. Yeah, and and people think uh, uh, learning how to read an audience is something you do from the stage. No, 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 it's something you do from the back of the room and carry with you on stage. Mm-hmm. You, you've had the opportunity to listen to that audience. Until you were broad enough, if you're, if you're the MC, you haven't got a lot to go on except what they sounded like before the show started. Mm. High energy, low energy. Is there a buzz in the room? Yeah, yeah. And what do they look like? Right. But the advantage of closing a show is always all this other information you have about this audience. Yeah. Second thing is, and this is something that I learned from Jimmy Wiggins. If you can focus on what the other comics are doing, find a joke that they just set up for you and open with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you look like so in the moment. Yeah. Everything else you do is going to seem fresh. Yeah. He had one of the greatest spur of the moment opening lines anyone's ever heard. He's working a, a biker bar in southern Indiana that's owned by Larry Bird. Okay. Larry Bird didn't open up a biker bar. It just turned into one. Yeah. When it opened, it was a Larry Bird bar. Uh-huh. So memorabilia all over the world, all over the walls. But it's it's biker. Not you either like working to bikers or you don't. Yeah. I've discovered that they are great audiences because they don't have a lot of boundaries. Yeah. And they're not afraid of you. Right, yeah. You never have to ask the bikers to sit up front. Yeah. <laughs> They're already yeah. there. <laughs> Sometimes they have, they have to ask you to come a little closer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's working down there with two less experienced guys, both of whom are terrified and terrorized by the audience and, and heckled mercilessly. They're just no peace. Oh, yeah. Now, here comes Jimmy Wiggins, all five foot three. Dressed in black with his hippie outfit on and his cane and his long white hair. And he goes up on stage, doesn't say a word, just walks around the stage examining all the things on the wall until the audience gives up and shuts up. What is going on? They can't figure out. And at that moment of silence, walks to the microphone and goes, I've been in this business for 40 years. And I've never worked a room with this much bird shit on the wall. 
now he owns it. Yeah. He owns it. <laughs> That's great. You you see, uh, a lot of guys want to start with your second strongest bit. He said, no, start with something that sounds like you just thought of it on the way to the stage. Mm-hmm. I've always tried to write something on my way to the gig. If it's good enough, I'll use that. But if something better comes up before the gig, mm-hmm. if something better than that comes up during the gig, I just did my first Zoom broadcast, 19 other comics. Uh-huh. And I'm up eight, number 18. So I got I got to listen to every premise I can think of uh-huh. getting burned to the ground. Well, it you know it's all COVID stuff, and and uh, at least I'd say half of the women comics talked about not wearing a bra. Uh huh. So my opening line was uh, for those of you keeping score, I am wearing a bra, <laughs> and just to break that, break the ice, and yeah, I've been listening just like you. Yeah. So we're already connected. Yep, yep. It's a great habit to get into. So, so listening to comics gives you material, gives you information about the audience, mm-hmm. but you already said the most important thing, which is it keeps you in the moment. Mm-hmm. Your yep. material is in your head. Remembering it should not be an issue. Yep. If I asked you, tell me about meeting your wife. Tell me about your first job. Tell me about where you went to high school. You wouldn't have to go, wait, let me see if I can remember. Mm -hmm. It's instantly accessible because it's all over your brain. That's the way your act should be. It should be so much you that you can talk about five minutes about forgetting what your act is. Yep, yep. It'd be funny doing. Yeah. And you are right on point. I've experienced the whole thing of doing my five minutes and two minutes. And it's, it's, it's like the worst feeling. You're like, okay, how much time do I have left? And <laughs> three minutes <laughs> feels like you've been up there forever. And everybody has to go through that. You gotta, you gotta experience that a couple of times so that you know uh, how to, um, Correct it and uh, and come back from it. You just reminded me of a of a moment that for a while Dobie would come on the, the last day of the class while I was teaching because that would be the performance day, mm-hmm. and he would come and the two of us would give feedback. And I'll never forget this but six seven years ago. Guys on stage, and again the I'm going to do five minutes, but two minutes in, mind goes blank. And he just looks balefully at the audience and goes, oh, man, I forgot what. And from the back of the room, Dobie says, just say what you were going to say next. And I go, okay. Yeah. And just went. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's great. It's amazing how we, how we let ourselves get in our own way. Yep. Yep. And sometimes it just takes that little, that little nudge. Mm-hmm. Say what you were going to say next. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the thing that was keeping him from remembering was him trying to remember. Yeah. Yep. Been there, done that. <laughs> I want to. 
I wanted to touch on one thing, um, because obviously when you start doing comedy, it gets your writing brain going. Um, you've, you've written some plays. Um, and did that come from, from, uh, your experience writing comedy or was that something totally separate for you? If you stay in comedy long enough, you get offered interesting gigs that are, I think of comedy as, as the hallway and then there's these little side rooms. Mm-hmm. Some of those side rooms are, are quite nice, like corporate work. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of nicer than the hall. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not the hall. People who do corporate work kind of focus on doing corporate work. Yeah. And occasionally someone from the hall gets invited in to do some work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the same thing is with you know, one man shows, college gigs, private parties, all of that stuff, writing for sitcoms, mm. doing podcasts. There's a lot of, Dobie always says that stand up comedy is Pluto in terms of the, of the performance solar system. Mm. And the proof of it is, if you if you've been on Pluto long enough, Venus is nothing. Check how many stand-up comics have become really very successful actors. Yeah, and yeah. then try to name how many very successful actors have legitimately can been convincing stand-up comics. Yeah, it just doesn't. No. Yeah. It can't. Now, I don't think that's just because I'm a stand-up comic and I recognize, you know, maybe mechanics recognize when actors are playing mechanics mm. that they're not that. I get that. But I mean, general audiences would have a hard time thinking of stand-up, of, of great actors being portraying successful stand-up yeah. comics. It's something that everyone can smell. Yeah. Well, and they've it, they've spent their whole life playing somebody else. So uh, being, you know, the whole thing about comedy is being yourself on stage. So you know, it's somebody else is a break. Yeah, what a nice vacation. Yeah, I mean, think think of De Niro trying to really become a comic. It just it just couldn't happen because he he gets into the character that he's in and becomes that that character. And you know, I him taking that to the stage would uh, just being himself on stage, you know, you know, he's no Rupert pumpkin. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I think part of it too is, is when you see an actor pretending to be a standup, he has, or she has absolutely no fear of failure. Yep. Yeah. Unless it's in the script. Yeah. And that doesn't mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's uh and, and, they're not doing it to uh, to make the bread and butter. They're just doing it as a side side job. It's just like if if they become a musician or something like that on the on the side too. It's just uh, something else they're doing, not what their uh, passion is. So yeah, it makes sense. So as I was doing stand up comedy, uh, particularly when I was doing it full time, when when one of these little side doors opened up, I couldn't help but peek in and see what was going on. Uh, and I, I, I train myself because I tend to be a cautious person. Mm-hmm. My instinct is to say, no, let me think about it. Yeah. 
I trained myself to say yes. Let me think. About yeah, it. yeah. And it got me into a lot of interesting things. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of interesting things, none of which panned into into a full time anything. Mm-hmm. I, I kept my focus. I I, uh, I remember years ago there was a an actor or a, an agency strike in uh, in Chicago. Uh, the casting agents were still working. The production companies were still working, but actors were on strike against their representation. I remember so that. All of a sudden, uh, there were these casting agents at every open mic, every comedy show, looking for anybody who, wa- <laughs> who wasn't in a union who yeah. could be Kraft Hart laid into an ad. I, I did one regional ad that earned me more money in a year than I had earned at comedy in a year. Wow. <laughs> this might be something to pursue. Yeah. <laughs> so I come up to the casting lady. She said, yeah, here, the strike is over. Go to talk, talk to these agencies, see which one you like. Tell me where you sign up and I'll, I'll get you a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. First one I went to sat down for the interview and the guy said, well, you know, you'd have to quit stand up comedy. Why? If you're filming, you can't be in Fort Wayne, Indiana doing a show. So I can drive back from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh Well, what if you have to do callbacks? I can drive back (laughs) to Fort Wayne. It's it's, it's just wouldn't work if you didn't quit stand-up comedy. So I said, thank you for your time. And I didn't even set up some other interviews. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't evenings when I look back and I go, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> commercial acting. Yeah. That's a good source of income in the city of Chicago. Yeah, no doubt. No, I, I think of the fun I would have missed and I would be hanging out with actors instead of comics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I Where's think I would part? I would prefer the comics over the most of the actors. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I, I, nothing against. I know a lot of actors. Yeah, but comics are the more interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Most definitely. Um, one of the things I like to ask everybody, um, and uh, just just because I like to have a record of it, uh, is. Uh, what three things do you know now about stand-up comedy that you wish you would have known when you first started out? I wish I would have known how difficult it is to do stand-up comedy, to get to get successful at stand-up comedy while maintaining a normal life. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons you see so many people in stand-up comedy at a young age is because they don't have any idea of the sacrifice. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, I, I wish I had had a better grasp of the amount of discipline that's something that looks so undisciplined involved. Yeah. It looks like so much fun, and it is. Mm-hmm. But what pays off is the is the part that wasn't a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and and um, self discipline 
is sorely lacking in a lot of people who fail and blame other things. Mm. But it's about it's about how much time and effort you're willing to put in every single day. Yeah. Third thing, I I wish I had known sooner how much comedy varies from region to region in the country. Uh, I, I think a lot of people naturally start out assuming that what's funny to everyone is what's funny to them, to to them and to their friends. Mm. And then they work the South. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I think it's possible to have larger themes and still have very personal comedy. And anytime you see a successful national act, you're seeing the truth of that. Mm. It, Jerry Seinfeld may seem a little New Yorkish. Uh huh. James Gregory may seem a little southernish, but they're talking about universal themes that that are funny from sea to sea. Yeah. It'd be nice if people people could recognize the difference earlier. Mm. I had known earlier about writing to to the human condition rather than the Chicago story. Uh -huh. Yeah. Chicago flavor is fine. Yeah. But if you want to be a national act, have a national sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, though, you know, that's, that's great because that's three different ones than anybody else has ever said. So uh, I, I have some overlap and you've got uh, three brand new things. So that's good. That's good. You get an A plus. Okay. <laughs> so now I'm dying to hear what the other people said. Yeah. <laughs> well, just listen to all my episodes and you'll know. So. <laughs> Some people only gave me one, and some people uh, gave me different variations of point. one. But you know, it's uh, so, some of them were were pretty good, and yours was yours was excellent. Um, just because I started thinking about this when you talked about networking, um, and um, you and I are both um, pre um, internet, pre social networking. Uh, we grew up without all that stuff, uh, and you're you're on you're on Facebook and stuff like that so you get to see what some of the comics do to um promote themselves and stuff like that do you feel like um if social networking and the internet was around when you first started do you think you would have dove into that social networking aspect and used it or um do you think you would have just done things on your own I probably ignore it more than I should. Mm -hmm. I am probably more retired than, yeah. than most of my friends. Um, I, I stopped calling people for work 23 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm still working. Well, not yeah. current, but I'm still working enough to keep me happy. Yeah. So I, I don't feel like like going out and trying to take work away from people who 
need it more than I do. Uh-huh. I'm okay with that. Uh, but you postulated a, a, a very different question. If the internet was around back then, yeah. would I have networked differently? And I, I, of course I would have. But I, I think the most successful part of your network, the part of your network that will eventually feed you is the part of the network you can feed. Mm. So I, I've got a lot of Facebook friends, some of whom I've actually met. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I know that there are, there are people whom I have never met who take me more seriously than some of the people that I have met. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, they are key components to, to my network. Mm-hmm. I've never met Linda Parrott. Mm-hmm. But I like to think that if I had an issue that I needed resolved in L.A., she would be someone that would help me resolve that right. issue. Yeah. But I've always taught feed your network and your network will feed you. Mm. If you cannot feed your network in some way, shape, or form, your network has no impulse to feed you. Mm. In this case, it's not what you would call a network. Right. It's just a net. Yep. And there's a difference. A net yep. is an inanimate series of connections. Yeah. A network works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and think... I mean, and this is how the network worked for me back in the day and still does. Mm-hmm. I told you, lived in a big comedy commune. Four comics, no waiting. <laughs> Plus, we had a guest room. A lot of road comics would come to Chicago and be shocked that if you weren't a headliner, this richest city in the Midwest wouldn't give you a motel room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you work in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. You get a motel room yeah. as an MC. You come to Chicago. If you're not a headliner, go find someplace. Yeah, <laughs> that's, and that's the truth. Yeah, because there's no comics in Chicago. Why do we need your road button? Yeah. So, anyway, lots of comics. Uh, the guy who manages Zanies still talks about. It. He said, "You know, I love those days." Because if I had a fallout for whatever reason, I'd just pick up the phone and I would call you guys. Mm-hmm. And if you, if one of you weren't available, between the four of you, you knew who was in mm-hmm. the city of Chicago. You were my one phone call shot. Yeah. And I tell it to people all the time. Someone calls you to do a job that you know you don't want and can't do. You still say yes. And you hang up the phone and you, you book that job mm. and you call the booker back. Now you've fed your network. You have found work for someone who wouldn't have had it, but for you. Yeah. And in a strange way, the booker is also a little obligated to you because they still only had to make one phone call. Yeah. Yeah. So you took nothing and turned it into Two little chunks of obligation. Mm-hmm. Feed your network, and your network feeds you. Yeah, yeah. It's funny the the 
marketing books I read, they talk about the what you need is a thousand true fans. And uh, once you get that, then you get exponential exp- exponential growth from that. And once you and when you do that, you have to do it by feeding your network. You you have to give them something to consume that is worth it for them that makes them want to come back. And the advantage of the internet is if you want that, uh, that carrot on the stick is Mm. available 24 hours a day. Uh, You know, we've been seeing a lot of exponential growth graphs during (laughs) the pandemic. Yeah. The difference between a a uh, a virus that each person spreads to two people and a virus that each person spreads to three people by the time you get out ten in- iterations, yeah, is ginormous. Yeah. Well, the same thing. It, if I can convince three people each to tell three people. By the time you get out ten iterations, that's millions of people. Yeah. Well, how do they? How do they know if you can't attach that to a video? Mm. Yeah. So, uh, I'm not solely in favor of people putting up every open mic they've ever done on YouTube. Yeah. I think it's a huge mistake. Yeah. Because it's there forever. Yeah. <laughs> but having a place where people can go to check you out if you are serious about being a success down the road mm-hmm. that's absolutely essential yeah and make sure that as you get better you replace that yeah why having your own website to do it makes a lot of sense yeah yeah yep that's and why i don't yeah <laughs> it's it's work you know i the the stuff I, I do for the podcast, it's just, it, it's amazing. You know, the stuff I make little video clips and stuff like that. And it takes, you know, 20, 30 minutes just to do a minute on that to get it edited and put the picture in and do the captions and all that kind of stuff. And you just think about that and, you know, that's, that's work. And, and, but it's, it, it's what you, it's what you got to do if you're going to do it. And, uh, I still know a couple of them that, that don't, that don't use social media at all. And, uh, they are, um, they're doing okay. And they're, you know, they're, they're youngsters in the, in the comedy world, but, uh, you know, the the majority of them, you know, they, they've got some sort of a presence and the ones that really hit it out of the park are the ones that just put up a lot of content, uh, interact with their fans and really, you know, just do the right thing. And, you know, Gaffigan does that, you know, uh, Gaffigan does it really well. Um, the, the balance, balance beam is always giving it away for free, mm-hmm. making them want more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If you give it all away, when they want more, they expect it to be free. Yeah, yeah. You got to give just enough so they want more, and then they're willing to pay. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Well, this is this has been a great talk, Bill. I appreciate you coming on the show, and and uh, yeah, I got some good revelations out of it, and I think everybody's going to enjoy this episode. It was it was it was great talking to you. Cool. Do you have anything? Uh, should I? Do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? 
I just booked. I had some offers that I turned out, uh, but I just booked my first post-COVID show. Okay. September 11th. Oh, okay. In Wisconsin. All right. I know Wisconsin will be around. Uh huh. And I hope I'll be around. Yeah. <laughs> Just hope the people in Wisconsin will be around. Yeah. Yeah. Watching them all storm into the bars last <laughs> week was kind of scary. Give me comedy and give me a beer. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, let me let's protest for months that we need to get back to work. And as soon as as the restrictions are off, heck with work. Let's go to the bar. Yep. <laughs> but that's why we love Wisconsin. Yep. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> well, great. Um, you know, I look forward to um, hopefully catching you on the road. I uh, I've decided that uh, when this is all over, I, I've been going north up into Michigan. I'm in uh, South Bend area, um, so I'm not too far from Chicago. I had already made made plans to start doing some mics in Chicago and uh, uh, meeting some people there. So um, hopefully, hopefully someday that'll actually happen. And I can do it. Let me know. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks again for being on the show. And I really appreciate your insight. It was great.